Well, I'm a South Carolinian, and we would say, thank y'all for being here. And we'd also say, if you're ever out our way, y'all come see us. And you can tell by the accent that I'm not from Colorado. But I sure love being here and being with you wonderful people. And I want to thank your pastor and his wife, Whitney, and her children for the hospitality shown for the great music today. Uh, Brother Jay, uh, the singing, the, the flutist, we thank you so much. In fact, I go to some churches and, you know, I hear people say, boy, what a great choir they must have. And indeed you do. But the way they sung today, I leave here saying, what a great God they must have to sing that way. Amen. And that's, that's what's important. Well, it is good to be here. Before we get into the message, and we'll be looking at a passage, Luke 2, excuse me, Luke 10, 1 through 9, and verses 23 and 24. Before we do that, I'll tell you a little bit about myself and make a little advertisement. Um, I, God called me to preach when I was 17, led me to pastor churches for 13 years, then sent us off to uh, international missions for 20, uh, 10 of those in Venezuela, uh, and also some time in Costa Rica, and then uh, back to the International Mission Board, where I was on staff for 10 years, and then that time, first three years, uh, uh, was the, the, um, in charge of the Southern Baptist World Hunger Program outside of the United States. And we believe in ministry evangelism. In other words, give folks bread in one hand and teach them how to earn their own bread and the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ in the other hand. You never separate those. And then the last seven years directed the Volunteers and Missions Department, which uh, sent out all our short-term volunteers to work with our missionaries in mission, on mission trips. And I'm sure some of you have been on some of those, and we thank you for doing that. But along the way, God also led me to be involved with a ministry called Baseball Chapel. And so uh, uh, for a couple of years was a chaplain with one of the Atlanta Braves minor league teams, and then went to Venezuela, and that's their national sport is baseball, it's not soccer. And we started Baseball Chapel with all their pro teams and many, many uh, of their baseball schools and academies. And um, now he's led me back uh, teaching at North Greenville University he also opened the door for me to serve as a Spanish-speaking chaplain for one of the Boston Red Sox minor league teams that's in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, having done that for a good part of 30 years, a couple of years ago the Lord led me to put a devotional book together. Uh, it's true baseball stories. I always tell ball players a true story from baseball history. But then the Bible passage and the application. So put together 162 devotionals because 162 games major league season. And I've got them with me. And I know a lot of them were taken after the first service. If there's any out, left out there, I would encourage you to pick up one. Uh, you get them on Amazon for $21. I give them to you for $15. And, uh, and they, uh, they have been used, these stories, to lead people to Christ who like baseball history and like they may not like the Bible when they first start reading it, but God convicts them through His Word. And so, in fact, uh, some of these stories, I, I carry a, a couple of stories, but mainly the Bible passages about three or four weeks ago with some players in the Boston Red Sox minor league system. And at the end of our time together, two players from the Dominican Republic, one Cuban and one Venezuelan, came to Christ as Lord and Savior. And so... Uh, and then they go back to their countries carrying the gospel. And so I would encourage if you know folks that like baseball, um, by the way, if you remember some years back, the Colorado Rockies had a great first baseman named Andres Galarraga. Uh, he's come to our apartment for Bible study and, and uh, helped me with baseball clinics in Venezuela. And so uh, he's heard a lot of these stories. And so if you want to pick one of those up, if they're all gone, you can leave your name and address and I'll mail you one and be happy to do that. All right, now that I've got that out of the way, let's get to the real business. Luke chapter 10 and verses 1 through 9, and we're going to look at the topic with Christ and His school of missions. And I want to thank you for having such a wonderful missions conference 
and for Larry Dick and the committee for the hard work they've done and all of your pastoral staff as how they've supported this time and we thank you so very very much now would you join me as we honor the reading of God's Word by standing would you do that and I'm only going to read verses 1 and 2 but we'll refer to these other verses in this passage of Scripture after these things the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You may be seated. Well, I'm sure there's some of you here today who are educators or you worked in school systems, and all of you, I'm certain, were students. And I bet we have all learned along the way that it pays to pay attention in school. In fact, I look back over my school experience and I wish I'd have paid attention to some things a lot more than I did. And I recall being in language school in San Jose, Costa Rica, studying Spanish. And a friend of mine named Ron, who went on to be a great missionary in Uruguay, Ron just had a hard time picking up the language. He just couldn't hear the sounds good. And so his phonetics weren't off, were not always correct. So one day he said to me, Bill, I've got to go downtown San Jose. Would you go with me? And it seems sometimes when I'm pushing through the crowd to get on the bus or going to the market and going through a crowd, and, 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 and I speak to people, sometimes they smile and sometimes they even laugh, and I can't figure out what's going on. I said, well, I'll do my best to listen. And so it didn't take long. We started getting on this crowded bus, and they're all crowded. You have to push your way through. He was wanting to say, excuse me, please. And that's, disculpeme, por favor. But his phonetics were off a little bit. And instead of disculpeme, he was saying, escupeme, por favor. Big difference. He was saying, spit on me, please. <laughs> And I said, Ron, I think you better be praising God that they did not take that literally and oblige you. Now, just go back to phonetics class and explain to the teacher your problem and see if she can give you some exercises to help you listen better. It pays to pay attention in school. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to Christ's school of missions. Now, he had already been teaching the 70 that he sent out, truths about his kingdom. Now he's giving them practical lessons. This is his school of practical missions that he's sending them to. And so we're going to look at what he taught them because it's applicable to us today. If you're a disciple of Christ, this is for all of us. And so let's look at some of those lessons that he taught. Beginning, if you'll look in verses 1 and 2, he describes the motivation for missions, for being involved in missions. And there's several ways you do that, and we'll be looking at those, but he gives three key uh, reasons to be motivated to give your life to missions. First of all, the Lord is worthy. In verse 1, if you'll notice again, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them out two by two. Now, He spoke, He appointed, He is worthy of our obedience. Amen? When He speaks, that's all the reason we need to do what He says. He is worthy. Now, I know, learned something about authority when we were serving in Venezuela. Uh, I have three daughters. I have ten grandchildren. Eight of them are girls. You imagine that. One wife, three daughters, eight granddaughters. We had a female beagle, and they all barked at me. <laughs> But down there, some men would come by our apartment occasionally, and they were real macho, like they're big stuff, you know. And they'd say, when are you going to be a real man? I said, what are you talking about being a real man? Well, real men have boys. All you do is have girls around here. So I said in Spanish, no importa, porque soy el jefe grande en mi casa. That means that doesn't matter. I'm the big boss in my house. Well, my daughter, my oldest, was 15 at the time, and she was around in the hallway, and I didn't even know she was listening. She came around, and I'll just go ahead and translate it for you. She looked at me in front of those men, and she said, Now, Poppy, that's right. You are the boss in the house, but don't ever forget that Mama is chairman of the board of directors. 
So those guys say, uh-huh, taking orders from the board, huh? And every time I talk to them, years have passed, they'll still ask me, you taking orders from the board of directors? Well, we laugh at that. But we have an authority above any board. And His name is Jesus. And so when He speaks, we must listen and we must obey. The second reason to be motivated to be involved in missions is the time is right. Look at verse 2. There He simply said, the harvest is plenteous. Now three times our Lord used that phrase in His ministry. Uh, once in Matthew's Gospel, He was pointing His disciples in the direction of Galilee of the Gentiles. It was a place of rebellion, a place of heartache. The Roman boot was heavy on it, a difficult place to serve. But he said, I see harvest there. Go to it, boys. And then in John's gospel, he was in Samaria. And again, he said, the Lord, the, the harvest is great. And what do we know about Samaria? Well, the Jews hated Samaritans. They called them half-breeds. They called them dogs. They despised them. But Jesus said, hey, I don't see it that way. That's a harvest field. Go to it. And then what we just read in Luke, he was pointing their attention to the region the other side of Jordan, a place called Perea. It was a neglected place, a forgotten place. Rarely would priest or prophet go there. In fact, Jews would only go there if they were traveling, so they uh, could go if they were going from Judea to, to uh, Galilee or vice versa. They would go across the river through Perea so they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. They hated the Samaritans much. It was a neglected place. But Jesus said, I don't see it that way. It's a harvest field. Go, 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 because you see the time is right. You see, the Lord refused to postpone harvest while others were doing so. He never saw difficulty. He saw opportunity, and so must we as His people. You see, He wept over the sheep. When is the last time I or you we have shed tears over lost people. Well, that's what he, he always did. But then the third thing he tells us about motivation for missions is the laborers are few. Again, in verse 2, he simply says, pray the Lord of the harvest, the laborers are few. Um, the New York Yankees established a baseball academy in Caracas. Uh, many of the professional teams did, and they looked for the best players in Venezuela. One day I went over and started Bible study with those young baseball players. And the first day I had Bible study, 14 of those young men gave their hearts to Jesus. One's name was Carlos. Carlos didn't make it to the big leagues, but he did go to Oklahoma Baptist University on a full scholarship. Then, while he was at the university, he was a summer missionary one summer in China. And get this, he was in China, up on the Russian border, teaching English to the Chinese. Now, God's got a sense of humor. A Venezuelan teaching English to Chinese on the Russian border. Only God can come up with that. And he was doing that. And next summer, he was a summer missionary in New England, and he led several of the Boston Red Sox to faith in Christ. He graduated with honors, became a successful businessman traveling the world in his business. He would meet with government leaders and top businessmen in, in different countries. And when he finished with the business, he'd say, now let's get around to the real business. Who wants to stay for Bible study? And he led many government officials in other lands to Christ. He's had a blessed life, but his life has not always been that blessed. When he was two years old, his father abandoned the family, drug and alcohol, and he left them. Well, his mother was very poor, and she had five children, and she couldn't afford to raise them all, so she entrusted the care of Carlos to one of his uncles in another part of Venezuela. As several years went by, the abuse started. Things so terrible they did to that young man, I cannot repeat them from the pulpit. But I can tell you one thing they did. They would go off the family for three or four days at a time, chain him to the kitchen table, and leave pans of food and water out on the floor like you would for your dog or cat. Come back and the beatings would start over. His mother found out what was going on and she rescued him from that situation. But the damage had been done. He had heart trouble. Not physically, but a heart filled with hatred 
toward the father who had deserted him and the mother who gave him away. But he also in that heart, there was an emptiness that he sought to fulfill or to fill in some way or another. He turned to his traditional Roman Catholicism, couldn't find his joy there. He turned then to a mixture of Catholicism and Spiritism, and he couldn't find it there. He became an actor in Venezuela soap operas. He, he couldn't find it there. Uh, then he said, well, I, I'll be a baseball player. I got a talent. I'll make money in the big leagues. Uh, in fact, th three or four days before he heard the gospel the first time, he'd just been released from uh, prison for public drunkenness and street fighting. But he was in that baseball academy to hone his skills and make it to the big leagues. He heard the gospel for the very first time and he gave his heart to Jesus. Two weeks later, I was back in the stadium taking him through a discipleship study. He put his big home run hitting arm around me and he squeezed me tight. He said, Bill, I got to tell you, for the first time in my life, I've got real joy. And Bill, it's because of one man and it's not you. His name is Jesus and I love him with all my heart. But then the grip tightened and tears began to fall from his face. And he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, when did you hear this gospel for the first time? I said, well, I guess if a baby can hear in their mother's womb, it was then because my mama took me to church all the time. But I came to Christ when I was 12. Did your dad know this gospel? Yes, he did. How about your grandfather? I said, yes. Do you think maybe even his father had heard the gospel? I said, most certainly. He began to pound the bleachers as he wept and he cried out. He said, well, Bill, tell me this. If all of you and others had heard this gospel, why did I have to wait until I was 18 years old to hear the good news for the very first time? Why didn't somebody come sooner? Why didn't somebody come and tell my daddy or his daddy? Why did we have to wait? Folks, I'll tell you, as you see on the screen there, no one has the right to hear the gospel twice while there remains someone who's never heard it once. And there are eight-year-old Carloses, 18-year-olds, and 88-year-olds in your community, in your state, around the world who are still waiting to hear the gospel for the first time. You see, there are people around you who've heard the name of Jesus, but they've never had any child of God explain the gospel they not heard the gospel. And in fact, you know, uh, recent surveys say that 30% of the pop population of Colorado attends church on a given Sunday. That was a survey. When statistical reports are analyzed from the churches in Colorado, you know how many people are in church today? 8% of your population. 92% are wandering out there in the world. And who's going to go reach them? I said to Carlos when he asked me that question, I said, please don't be angry with God. It's not God's fault. You see, Jesus said 2,000 years ago, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and we've not done it. Pray for us that we will complete that, and we all need to work together to do that. So the, the, the Lord is worthy, the time is right, the laborers are few. You say about... Bill, I can't do that because I, I'm not a preacher like you or like Brother Chris. Or I, I'm just, that's not me. I'm not theologically trained. Well, <laughs> Jesus chose a funny group, didn't he? Fishermen, tax collectors, all sorts of people. And you know, when I was at the International Mission Board, we put together a list of ways that People were serving out a list of 70 different ways. And I'm not going to go through all 70, but let me just give you a few. Uh, we need people who just love to share the gospel and be involved in evangelism and church planting, music training seminars, people to work in VBS, uh, people to work with our missionary kids when they have mission meetings and gatherings, uh, English teachers teaching English as a second language as Carlos did and leading people to Christ that way, videographers and photojournalists, media art designers. We've sent people to drill wells all over the world to give fresh water to people, people who could do vocational training, um, drama teams, puppet teams, sports camps and clinics, baseball players in Venezuela helped me and other missionaries in a two-year period start 20 churches through their witness for Christ using their gift 
and talent as baseball players. Uh, we need medical personnel, dentists, uh, medical professors to give lectures. We sent people to do law enforcement training with other law enforcement agencies in countries around the world, firefighter training, agricultural development. One of the greatest things we have, for example, in the Philippines, uh, farmer pastors trained by our missionaries in simple agricultural techniques started 700 churches on the island of Mindanao. So we use farmers. And then uh, in the Philippines as well, we had a request for a fruit, berry, and nut specialist. I said, well, we got plenty of nuts. It'll be fine. But we'll send you our good folks. We won't send you the nuts. But we did send them over to help with this agricultural project. You see, there's always. So go out there and talk to these representatives from the different agencies. They're all wonderful agencies. And let them tell you the ways that you can serve with the skills that God has given you. Many, many ways. And then may your heart be encouraged as we look at the marvelous method of missions. The method of missions, verses, latter part of verse 2 through 4. First thing we see in verse 2 is that the sent ones are selected by the Savior. The sent ones are selected by the Savior. If you look there, we're told in the latter part of that verse, <clears throat> pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. You see, the plan for getting workers, whether it's in your local church, I wish I had known this as a young pastor, I wouldn't have spent time in so many nominating committee meetings trying to twist people's arms to do something. The Lord says, if you need workers, ask for them. Just ask me, and I'll raise them up for you. That's true in the local church and to the ends of the earth. So our part is to ask, His part is to call. Now, when I was on staff those 10 years at the International Mission Board, if I wasn't overseas somewhere, I would be preaching in little churches to mega churches and missions conferences. And over those uh, uh, 10 years, I decided I wanted to collect churches' prayer guides, whether the church had one or was online or Sunday school classes. Just give me your prayer guides. And I did a little unscientific survey. I wanted to find out how many of our Baptist churches that I was preaching in actually did what the Lord said. Three times, what did He say? Pray the Lord of the harvest. That ought to be on our prayer guides all the time. So I wanted to see. And so I collected about 200 prayer guides. And you know how many churches I found that were consistently, regularly including that before their people to pray the Lord of the harvest? Five out of 200. No wonder... We don't have the workers and the laborers going out here and witnessing for Christ. We're not asking Him. You see, it's not our beautiful uh, plans or our, our programs. It's not by persuasive pleading that Jesus says, get the workers. He just says, ask me. Call on me. Now, I have a kind of a theory as to why we fail to do that so much. And it's not necessarily on purpose, but it's just something I think that might be ingrained in us. It's called the bullseye effect. You see, it's easy to pray the Lord save Venezuela, save Colorado Springs, save China, save India. That's easy. But he said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers. You know what happens when you do that? Put a bullseye on your chest. He might just say, well, thank you. I've been waiting on you to ask for that. You're the one. <laughs> or he might say, thank you, it's your child. Thank you, it's your grandchild. Thank you, it's that person you sing with in the choir. Thank you, it's even your pastor or some of your pastoral staff. Thank you for asking. You see, that's what he does. When we ask, he answers. And He tells us to ask. So don't be afraid to put the bullseye on you or anybody else. You know, I'm from a little textile mill village in upstate South Carolina. I had a thousand people on that village. They called us lint heads because we worked with cotton. I never expected God would take a lint head and send him to 68 countries around the world and plant me in a city of 6 million people for 10 years. Never would have dreamed that. When God spoke to me, I was sitting there, and He was calling me to preach, and I said, Lord, let me bend back this way. I think you're talking to this man over here, and I'm in the way. Scared me to death. 
but I wouldn't take anything for saying yes to what God had in store. So, the sent ones then are selected by the Savior. But the sent ones are sent by the Savior. If you look at verse 3, look at what he says here. Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Now his method is to take ordinary folk that he calls lambs, send them among unordinary people he calls wolves, to do extraordinary things. So you don't have to have a big pedigree for God to use you. One of my heroes is Brother Gonzalez. Brother Gonzalez lives in Caracas, Venezuela, in a place called Petare, more specifically La Parisia, which means the grill. It's a place where the police won't even go. 200,000 people controlled by mafia types, full of murderers and thieves and rapists and drug addicts. He called me one night and he said, uh, Brother Bill, God's laid on my heart. We need to have a church over here. There's not a church in this uh, area. 200,000 people. And he said, I'm going to invite the neighbors to my house on Tuesday night. Would you come and preach the word to them? I said, sure. So I met him on the street and we started down this big hillside, Caracas uh, Valley surrounded by the Andes Mountains. And so these poor houses, these little shacks are just stacked on top of each other. And you go down these narrow walkways and there's houses on your right and houses on your left. And finally, we went way down and we stopped where there was a house on my right, a door there. And our feet were level with the roof of the houses going on down the hillside. We stand there on this walkway. And so we talked for a minute, and I said, Brother Gonzalez, shouldn't we go in your house and get ready for the people? They'll be coming soon. He said, yeah, let's do that. So naturally, I turned to go in this door. He said, well, I don't live there. I live here. And he pointed to that roof. I said, well, shouldn't we go on down the path and go in your door? He said, I don't have a door. I said, you don't have a door? How do you get in this place? Well, he just reached over and took the old tin roof and slid it over, and there was a rickety old ladder. And I'm climbing down it thinking, what in the world am I thinking about? A gringo to preach in Spanish in a dangerous place like this in a dark, dreary room? What in the world? But we got down there and the people started coming. They came in such numbers, we had to lift all of his furniture out of the house through that roof so they'd have a place to stand. And they stood like the proverbial sardines and... Uh, Shoulder to shoulder, I had to back up against the wall and hold my Bible like this because they were this close. Now, I want you to know I had my breath mints. I wish they'd had theirs. It was, it was a difficult situation, but God blessed. And 10 or 15 folks gave their heart to Jesus. The next two weeks, Brother Gonzalez went door to door, and he led 40 adults to saving faith in Christ. He found a little abandoned storefront. He rented it out, put a sign up there, Salem Baptist Mission, and he became the leader. Now, here's why he's my hero. He never went to seminary. He never went to a university. He never went to a Bible institute. Uh, he didn't finish high school. Uh, he didn't finish elementary school. He did finish the first grade. He has not been to any of the places that many of us convince ourselves we have to go to or take certain training for God to use us as His witnesses. He didn't have to go to any of those places, but he knew he had a testimony for Christ. And that's what counted. He also, although he hadn't been to those places, let me tell you where he had been. He had been to the foot of the cross. Amen. And he looked up to his Savior and he said, Lord Jesus, as the little boy with the loaves and the fishes, I don't have much, but what I have is yours. Multiply it for your glory and use me to bring people to Christ. And so there's a church there now and he started several more in his lifetime. Now, who's not qualified after you hear about Brother Gonzalez? We all are. We're, his, we're to be His witnesses. He didn't say, go into all the world and be my pastors, be my teachers, be this, that. He said, ye shall be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. And so we're to be His witnesses. So the sent ones also are supplied by the Savior. Now look at verse 4. He says there, carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. Was he telling them, now go out and be rude to people? No. He was just saying, listen, what I'm commissioning you folks to do, do it with urgency. Don't get sidetracked. Amen. Go quickly. There are people who need the gospel. And then he says in verses 5 through 7, go with confidence and dedication. 
knowing that I will supply through others. If you read those verses, you'll see that He makes a promise that He will raise up people to supply what the laborers need as they go out. Praise God for your church and your faithful giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, Annie Armstrong, uh, to your state missions, to other mission organizations. And that's wonderful. You're sending those funds to get the gospel out and keep doing that. The Lord says He'll raise up people to support His workers. First time I went into the locker room of the Caracas Lions, that's like going into the New York Yankees here in the States. That's the big professional team in Venezuela. And uh, many of these guys played in the big leagues, and North American players would come down for winter ball and play there. And so I went in and I invited them to go to another room for Bible study. It was completely voluntary. Some did and others didn't. But as we were leaving, one guy named Edgar, a Venezuelan, he began to mock and laugh make fun of the guys going to Bible study and cursing. He was one of the most ungodly men I've ever met in my life. His idea of being a real man was uh, drink as much as you can and go around Venezuela and father as many children as you can and leave them to somebody else to take care of. That was his idea. Well, his best friend on the team got saved. And between his best friend and me, he didn't have a place to hide. And so we kept witnessing to him. And the last day of the season, he trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. Then the next day, he got on an airplane, went to Milwaukee Brewers training camp, signed to the AAA team in El Paso, Texas. Well, I told the pastor in the first service, have you ever met anybody that you wondered, did they really understand? He was so ungodly. Lord, did you really save this guy? Because I didn't get to disciple him. I didn't know. And so I prayed all, all the time he was in the States. He came back after... Uh, season here, and I saw him in the ballpark in Caracas. He ran up to me, lifted me off the ground. Blessings, Brother Bill, blessings on you. And I thought, man, this guy used to curse me. But I still had some doubts. Does he really understand? So I said, Edgar, if you had to put your finger on one thing that gives you the greatest joy in this new Christian life and this walk with Christ, what would it be? He said, well, do you know what it means to give tithes and offerings? I said, well, sure I do, but what's that got to do with my question? He said, everything. He said, in El Paso, a little Baptist church discipled me. And he said, uh, in the services, I, I never realized until the pastor and others taught me how God could take our gifts, multiply them, and see people come to Christ all around the world. And so the most exciting, joyful time for me in any worship service is when they pass the offering plate. In fact, I told my pastor, can't we pass that thing three or four times every service? I said, man, you did get saved, didn't you? And may your tribe increase. But that's what it's about. The Lord says, I'll raise you people up to support those that are going out from your church and other churches. So, we've seen now the method of missions. Let's look at the ministry and message of missions. What are we to be about? Well... The first thing you see in verse 8, we're taught there to accept hospitality. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Now, I'm not going to tell you some of the things I've had to eat around the world in those 68 countries. I've had things I don't know what I was eating. Uh, in Kyrgyzstan, I won't give you the full details, but I was a guest of honor of a traditional feast because they wanted to say thank you to Southern Baptists for giving World Hunger Funds and building a, flour, a wheat processing mill in their town so they could feed the hungry and the poor. So I was there representing you in, in a traditional meal, and they gave me what they said was the best portion of meat that was coming out, and it looked at me, and I looked back at it. It was the head of the sheep. And I, I had the joy of eating both eyes and, and uh, the brains and everything else. And I won't go into detail. My wife said, quit telling that story. Everybody turns green. So I don't do that anymore. <laughs> and the reason I'm not, she's online watching from South Carolina right now. But anyway, we did all of that. And I'll tell you after service, you want to hear the details. We did all of that. And uh, when we finished, the room was filled with 20, 25 men. And they said, uh, aren't you a Bible teacher? I said, yeah. Teach us a story from the Bible. So the next 30 minutes with an interpreter, I did. I finished. They said, no, 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 don't stop. Teach another one. So I did. 
And then they said, don't, don't stop, teach another one. Folks, that went on for five hours. Now, what if I had said no to their food? You see, there's a mission principle there. And there's a missionary prayer. Lord, I'll put it down if you'll keep it down. And you just, you, you can do it. You can do it, okay? So don't be afraid to go somewhere where there's what you would think strange food. And some of it's pretty good after a while and you get used to it. But that's the, that's the first thing. We're to accept their hospitality. And then we're taught to administer healing and heal the sick there, verse 9. Do you know every day in this world there are 35,000 people who are dying from hunger and hunger-related disease. Now, that means every two days, a stadium like the Denver Broncos is being filled and emptied with corpses. Every two days. And we're told to go and do what we can to meet those human needs, as I just shared with you how Southern Baptists are doing that. But we're not just to meet those human needs, we're to announce hope. And if you look at verse 9 again, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near. 85% of the poorest people on this planet live among unreached people groups who have little or no access to the gospel. Most of them have never heard the name of Jesus. But when we combine the meeting of needs and the sharing of the gospel, like I just shared with you the story from Kyrgyzstan, God works miracles and amazing things begin to take place. So we're to give, we're to announce that hope. Never, ever forget what it meant for God to give us the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You see, let me see if I can illustrate from a story in Venezuela again. Venezuela is a beautiful country. We've got the Andes Mountains. We've got the Caribbean Ocean. We've got deserts even. We've got the Amazon region. But there's a big region called Los Llanos. That's Plains country. And it's home to big cattle ranches. And at certain times of the year, the cattlemen are faced with a problem. They'll have to move a herd from one pasture land to another when it's been grazed out, but they have to cross a river. And in many of those places there, there are no bridges. So they have to find a place to ford the river. And as they take the cattle through, they're aware that there's danger in the water. Uh, those rivers are inhabited by little eating machines called piranhas. Ferocious teeth. Now you see these movies where somebody falls out of a boat or sticks their hand in the water and the piranhas just start churning. That doesn't happen. But they are more sensitive to blood in the water than a shark is. And they're drawn to blood. So you can imagine a herd of cattle is going through. A cow scrapes its leg on a stone and blood gets in the water. Schools of hundreds, sometimes thousands of piranhas will come and they can decimate a herd. So what do they do to protect the herd? They select a cow and they take that cow about a kilometer upstream up the river, put it out there in the river and with a machete strike it several times. And as blood flows down the, the river where the herd of cows are, the piranhas there are drawn upstream. And while they're feasting on this cow, the rest of the herd is taken safely from the side of death to the side of life. Now the interesting thing is they have a name for that cow. You know what they call that cow? The substitute cow. One whose life will be sacrificed that the others might live. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we who are under the law might be redeemed and given the full rights of His sons. Listen, when that time came, God's hand didn't stretch out over heaven and send us a superman to impress us with the right, uh, godly living. He, he didn't stretch out His hand and send a prophet to teach us principles to live by. He didn't send angels to impress us with miracles that we might fall before Him in fear. No, His hand didn't rest on a substitute cow, but it rested on a substitute lamb, His perfect, holy Son. And He didn't place Him in a river filled with piranhas, but He placed Him in a river filled with our black sin. And there He took the wrath of God, the lightning bolt's wrath of God upon Himself that we deserve so that when we trust in Him, we are carried safely from the side of death to the side of life, and so are those we lead to know Him. Amen. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's the message that we have. 
Now, do we really believe the words of Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? And what else did he say? No man comes to the Father except by me. Do we really believe that? You know, we can, we can say we believe those things and live like practical atheists. Or we can live like practical universalists that God's just going to save everybody. I was preaching in a big mega church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. At the end of the service, two young couples came down and said, we've got a question. You seem to imply when you were preaching that anybody who dies, whether it's here locally or to the ends of the earth, and they haven't heard the gospel, that they're going to be separated from God and spend eternity in hell. I said, oh, forgive me. I didn't mean to imply that. I meant to make that clear. They said, no, you can't be serious. God wouldn't uh, allow anybody to suffer condemnation because of ignorance. I said, okay, let's think about that. Do you know what you have just done? You have just created a new gospel. We will call it the gospel of ignorance. And if your gospel is correct, that ignorance is the sure ticket to enter into heaven, then what we need to do is shut down our churches, call all our missionaries home, Tell people to eat, drink, and be merry. And when they die, they're just going to go off and be with their Santa Claus God. Your, your gospel of ignorance then is more powerful than the gospel of the cross. And furthermore, if what you say is true, why would we want to serve a God so cruel to send His Son to a torturous Roman cross to die if it's totally unnecessary? If ignorance is the way... Why would we want to know a God who allowed His Son to die if it was unnecessary? I said, you see, you're asking the wrong question. You keep asking, what about those who've never heard? Jesus told us what to do about that. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We haven't done it. He's not going to ask us when we get to heaven, well, how did you handle that question? What about those who've never heard? You know what He's going to say? What about those of you over here and over here and over here and over here? What about you who never witnessed? What about you who never shared the gospel? What about you who never prayed for the workers? What about you who did not open up your wallet and give that others might hear and believe? That's the question. How are you going to answer it? Oh, we, the devil wants us to get hung up on what about those who've never heard? And God's saying, my people, what about those of you who are not sharing through life and word the precious word of God? Well, we've seen the method, excuse me, the ministry and message of missions. But look now at the majesty of missions. Verses 23 and 24. Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see, and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear, and have not heard it. You understand what that says? The Old Testament prophets and kings desired to hear and see what we are privileged to hear and see every day. And what we are privileged to see when we announce the good news to others. We see people come into the kingdom, and that's what they dreamed about seeing. We're now living that. That's the majesty of missions. In Costa Rica, my wife and I were to be there for one year of language school, and when we finished, Venezuela was not allowing missionaries to enter the country, so we stayed another year and a half in Costa Rica, and that was fine with us because we had started a ministry in a refugee camp for Nicaraguans who were fleeing from their country because of the war between the Sandinistas and the Contras in the, in the 80s. And so we were working there. And in one camp, there was a, a man named Rosario. I'd never met anybody before or since that had more real, genuine joy than that man. And now, Rosario wanted to lead the singing in the little church that we were starting. But there was a problem. Our old brother Jay's ever experienced this, but uh, met people who can't carry two in a bucket. He couldn't carry one in Noah's Ark. It, it was awful. It would have sunk the boat. Well, but because of the joy that was so real, we said, okay, you lead the singing. And we just did our best to follow what he was doing. 
After working with him for about four months, I felt like we were close enough that I could ask him some personal questions. And I said, Rosario, could you mind telling me why you decided to leave your homeland of Nicaragua with your wife and seven children and come and live under the wretched conditions you have to endure in this refugee camp? And he said, well, Bill, it started one Sunday afternoon. He said, I had an 18-year-old son, and he was out in this valley where we live. We were poor farmers. Everybody there were farmers. And he was inviting all of our neighbors to come to an all-night prayer meeting that we were going to have at our house. And all of a sudden, a group of soldiers, Sandinistas, came in and stopped him and asked him, what are you doing? He told them. They said, well, there's two things we want from you. Number one, tell us where the rebels in this valley live. And number two... Forget this foolishness about God. A new day has come to Nicaragua. The government's going to take care of you. Deny Jesus. The, young, the neighbors who saw this said the young man replied, first of all, I don't know any rebels. And secondly, I will never be a rebel against the king who gave his blood for me. Well, they had ways of getting what they wanted. My wife and I saw the marks of torture on the bodies of many of those refugees. And in this case, here's what they did to the young man. They forced him to his knees, and with a sharp knife, they started taking pieces of his ear off. And they worked the way up the ear, but he would not do what they wanted, and they removed this ear. They started on this ear, and the, the witnesses said that at that time, he started singing in Spanish, There is a name I love to hear. Oh, how I love Jesus. And they worked their way up the ear, and the singing didn't stop. It just got louder and sweeter, more conviction. Oh, how I love Jesus. There is a name I love to hear. They removed this ear. Then they stretched his arm out, and with machete, they amputated his hand. And as the blood flowed from, from his body, the singing got louder. There is a name I love to hear. Oh, how I love Jesus. They amputated this hand, but the singing didn't stop. Seeing they could do no more, they shot him in the head, decapitated him, and left his body there. Neighbors went and got Rosario. He gathered up the corpse of his son. Through my tears, I said to him, I now understand why you left. Hell, we didn't leave them. We decided to stay. But two weeks later, the soldiers came back. And this time, they gathered everybody in the valley together in front of the house of my only married son. And they said, we're going to make an example for you of anybody that we catch helping our enemy. And they took my two-year-old grandson and they put him in a potato sack and they tied it tight and they threw him in that house and they doused the house with gasoline and they lit the match and all we could do was weep and pray as that inferno caved in on my grandson and I heard his death cries. Then we decided to leave. Well, I don't know how long it took me before I could speak again. But I said, Rosario, now I understand what you, why you left. But what I don't understand is this moment by moment, second by second, joy that is so real in your life. What's the secret? He said, oh, Bill, I've learned to live my life looking through the eyes of faith. And I know, as King David said about his son, that my son and grandson can never return to me, but one day I will go to them. And you see, I see through the eyes of faith right now that day as though it's happening. And I see the throne of the Lamb of God. And around that throne, people from all nations and tongues and tribes. And there they are, worshiping the Lamb of God. And I take my son by one hand and my grandson by the other. And when the Lamb makes his appearance on the throne, I nudge my boy and I say, boy, now's the time. And he lifts up our hands, joining hands with people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And he starts leading us as we sing, there is a name I love to hear. Oh, I love Jesus for all eternity. We'll sing that. And he said, Bill, there is not a soldier, a government, a demon or the devil himself that can take that joy and assurance from me. That's my secret. Folks, that's why we are involved in the majesty of missions. That's what it's all about. We're left here. When you accepted Christ, why didn't he just go ahead and take you to heaven? He's glad you're his child, but he's got more children that he wants us to be involved in looking for and bringing to him. So that that day, we'll all gather around that throne and see with our eyes the nail prints in the hands, the nail prints in the feet, the eyes of love, the one who died for us. 
and others locally and to the ends of the earth that through our witness are there to praise Him. That's what it's all about. How are we doing? So, are you ready for graduation from school and a lifetime of active service? I hope that you are. And so I want to ask you, would you do three things? Would you say, Lord, I will pray unconditionally. I will give generously. I will go obediently as you call. Now, the invitation to respond today is going to be very simple. It's directed primarily at believers. Now, if you're a non-believer here today, we're not, we're not sliding you. You've heard the gospel today that Jesus died for your sins. And if you've never surrendered your life in trust, uh, trusting Him and Him alone and nothing else, then the pastors will be back at the doors as you leave. You share with them that you want to know Jesus and they'll talk with you. If you need to unite with this church, they'll tell you how you can do that. If you have a prayer need, take it to them. But for God's children, believers, now hear me. Here's the invitation for us today. Would you be willing to come to this place of prayer, either sit down, stand up, kneel down as the Lord leads you, and say, Lord, I'm going to be obedient and I'm praying the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And Lord, I know that means putting the bullseye on me. And I know that means putting the bullseye on my children and my grandchildren, my closest friends, the people I sing in the choir with, even my pastors. That, that, Lord, I know that. But you said if we ask, you would respond and you would give those workers. And so I'm asking you today as believers, come here for a moment of prayer and let me lead you in prayer to the Lord of the harvest with a willingness to say unconditionally, I'm praying for workers. And if I'm that worker, I want to know it, Lord. And if it's my, my family members or my friends, I surrender them to you. Would you do that today? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for that great day when we'll see with our own eyes the majesty of being involved in missions. And we will hear the nation's tongues and tribes proclaiming the praises of Jesus around His throne. We look forward to that day. But then, God, we know that as You sent the 70 into those places that You Yourself would go, that You're doing the same with us here today. Lord, there are places here in Colorado Springs where there are people who are still in darkness. There are places in Colorado, there's places, Lord, uh, in our United States and certainly throughout the ends of the earth where people are in darkness. And Lord, we want to thank You for calling us into the light, out of the darkness and saving us and bringing us into the light. And now, Lord, my earnest prayer is that You would commission all of us to carry Your light back into the darkness. The dark places here locally and the dark places throughout this world. So God, I pray now that Your people would respond simply saying, Lord, I've come to be obedient and I'm going to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out those workers. And I do so with no strings attached. Lord, may it be so for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand. You've heard God's invitation. You respond as He lays upon your heart. You come right now and let's pray the Lord of the harvest together. Would you come?